This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. Hello and welcome to the Llama Podcast. I'm Peter Bowes and Llama, Live Long and Master Aging, is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Now, we all have our own ideas about what it's like to age. Most of us expect the process to involve frailty, disease and a progressive decline into poor health. Well, perhaps not, and hopefully not, if you're listening to this, the chances are your view of the ageing process is rather more optimistic than that. Mine certainly is, and my guest this week is the ultimate optimist. Nathaniel David, known as Ned to his friends, is a molecular and cell biologist and the founder of Unity Biotechnology, a company that envisions a future in which people stay healthy, mobile and disease-free long into old age. I met Ned at the most recent TED Med conference at La Quinta in California. Ned David, welcome to the Llama Podcast. Hi, pleasure to be here. How did you get interested in human longevity? Also, I'm a biochemist and I've spent most of my adult life, which I guess you could count to be something on the order of like almost 30 years <laughs> of being a biochemist. And I spent the last 18 years of that founding biotech companies. We have two FDA approved drugs that have come out of my companies, one for type 2 diabetes, another one, um, believe it or not, that causes fat cells to explode. <laughs> okay, And uh, about five years ago, a lot of people would like that to happen, I think. Yeah. Their fat well, cells to explode yeah, no, and disappear. That's an approved drug. It's called Kybella. So you can go to your dermatologist anytime you want. We sold that company to Allergan last year. But um, about uh, five years ago, um, I got involved in this project. And it was when one of my collaborators, uh, Jan van Dersen, who is a professor at Mayo Clinic, published a rather astonishing observation, which was that the clearance of these cells that no longer divide what we call senescent cells from the bodies of mice could dramatically extend the period that these mice lived free of chronic diseases of aging. Now, this was a paper in 2011. The mice were genetically peculiar. These were mice that aged very quickly. And so at the time, there was, you know, a lot of kind of you know, sort of questions and disbelief around the relevance of this observation to actual human aging. But nonetheless, that five years ago, we decided that the evidence was compelling enough to put a project together. So some friends of mine and I, we put some money into this project and founded a company called Unity. And what we spent over the first four years of the last five was on a relatively tight budget, really asking two questions. And the first question was, were there actual diseases that the FDA would call a disease? Something like blindness or, you know, diabetes or heart failure, something like this. Was there a disease where we could clear senescent cells in an animal model or some relevant model of disease and actually observe a change? you know, when you did this. Just, and, just yeah. to pause, just give me a broader definition of a senescent cell. 
So a senescent cell is a cell, well, I'd sort of start off by imagining yourself at conception as a single cell um, as we all begin life. This cell has the capacity to divide about 50 times. And over the arc of your life, that's approximately the maximum number that nearly every cell type can divide. And as it approaches this limit, something happens, some stress event, and this cell stops dividing forever. And when the cell pulls this emergency brake and stops dividing, that is when we refer to it as a senescent cell. Now, not dividing is not a big deal. Turns out most cells in your body are not dividing. The big deal part of it is that when this emergency brake gets pulled, the cells, in addition to not dividing, adopt this bizarre behavior. They redirect their metabolism to secrete hundreds of proteins that are pro-inflammatory. And some are growth factors and some are enzymes that chew up your tissues. And it's all of this secretory stuff that these cells do after they've stopped dividing that is why we believe these cells are bad for you. And what we've done over the last five years is we've been able to implicate this process in which the cell stops dividing and instead becomes this secretory cell as one of the drivers of multiple diseases of aging. And the idea we have is that were you to build a drug that could selectively eliminate these cells, you could intervene in a variety of these diseases. Now, is this, some people might say, well, this is just the natural process of aging. It is quite natural process of aging. You know, so why interfere with it? Well, um, I would say that, first of all, when we do this, I don't want to sort of oversell the kind of sort of centrality of this mechanism. So senescent cells are not the only reason you age. So when we do this, animals age differently and they age more, they age more slowly. But what's neat about this is that a variety of diseases, and we've published a series of papers in Nature Medicine, Nature and Science over the last year and a half. What we, and we have another paper in Science Translational Medicine that we'll hopefully publish in the next six months. What we've shown is that as you age, these cells are necessary and I use that word quite deliberately, they are necessary for the progression of a series of diseases that are characteristics of being old. So let, I'll give you a few examples of things we've already published. Chronic kidney disease. So this is a disease that in the United States we spend $35 billion a year, with a B, okay, doing dialysis and other things to treat end-stage renal disease, which is where you wind up when you get chronic kidney disease. When we clear senescent cells from mice, the central disease process that drives this disease is halted in its tracks. Imagine a drug in which you didn't get chronic kidney disease anymore and there was no end-stage renal disease. And that $35 billion a year of dollars, which is bigger than the entire NIH budget, that's gone. That disease is now something you read about in books. So quite apart from any kind of fantasies about living forever or some grotesquely long lifespan, how neat would it be if these scourges that dent our GDP in a profound way, these diseases that come at the end of life, didn't come? You know, the way we think about it is, what if you could grow old without actually having to grow old? And um, we think that, you know, there's a lot of people that say this whole, like, you know, extending lifespan stuff is kind of creepy and weird. And 
I don't think there's much creepy and weird about banishing these just scourges of aging. And I think it's only yeah, ex- yeah. it's only yeah. extreme and weird mm-hmm. if you are talking about extending lifespan beyond 100 years, 150 years, 200 years to something that is you know, out of this world. Yeah. So and we're still in this world. Yeah. We don't know how to do that yet. <laughs> okay. Um, if we'll ever be able to do that. Yeah. And, and we can talk more about that later. But, um, you know, what we see in mice is that when we clear senescent cells throughout the arc of the animal's life, what we see is a pretty healthy increase in median lifespan. So in our best experiment, it can be 35% increase. But maximum lifespan doesn't change very much at all. It's somewhere between 5 and 10%. So I think rather, so if assuming everything that happened in mouse happened in you or me, the outcome would be rather than dying, say you or me at 89 years old, demented and catheterized in our bed, you and I might die, for example, at age 109 on the tennis court while winning or killed by a jealous lover at 116. So, you know, I don't think we enter the realm of the sort of sort of bizarre or grotesque there. What we enter is a realm of healthy, extremely healthy, perhaps unnaturally healthy old age, but an age that I'd, I'd like to experience. So you've done this work with mice, and Mm -hmm. it always brings to mind the skepticism of some people that you can't necessarily correlate what happens in a mouse with with a human being. So where do you stand on that? So um, animal models, or I would say experimental systems of any sort, only allow you to ask the question that the model asks, and unfortunately nothing more. And so the way another friend of mine once put it is, the model only asks the question it asks, not the question you want to ask. And so whenever you're doing drug discovery, you are dealing with various levels of contrived models, whether it's you know, a rodent model, whether it's a monkey model, whether you've taken somebody's knee, a human, out of themselves and put it in a dish and are now soaking it in your drug. All of these models tell you lies in different ways. And if you were to plot in kind of contrived space, how contrived is this model versus this other, you can actually plot which model is more likely to lie to you than others. And so examples I'd provide is that if you study antibiotics, you know, and you put a bacterial infection into a rat and you put a drug in, it's probably going to tell you the truth. It's a fuzzy test tube. At the far other extreme is things like neurodegeneration, where there's no animal model that's ever accurately predicted. (laughs) you know, a drug that could alter human neurodegeneration. So what we try to do at Unity is we work with models of diseases that we hope are kind of closer to the antibiotic side of being truthful with you. And we combine those studies with a lot of ex vivo human tissue work. And what that phrase means is that we get disease tissue like a person's knee who has osteoarthritis, and we literally take it out and soak it in our drug and look at the biology, interact with it. And then we see what does this per this human knee, albeit not in the person anymore, do when it is now contacting our molecule. And so that model is going to lie to you in different ways than the mouse will. And so what we do is we tend to kind of combine these types of experiments to try to arrive at some degree of conviction before we move into the human experiment. That is one of the problems with this kind of research, with Mm. research connected with longevity. 
using humans to do the experiments because it just ain't that simple for people to be monitored over a long period of time to get the data that you need to reach any sort of meaningful conclusions. So that's why we tend to look at disease states in which, because, you know, aging is slow, right? That's the, it's, it's actually the slowest thing that happens to you, okay? If you think about it, there's nothing that happens slower in your life. Um, than your rate of aging. And so, you know, it's way worse than watching paint dry or grass grow. And so you need to find clinical... A bit more exciting, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. Um, So you need to find clinical settings in which when you intervene and whatever that intervention is, is that the result of it happens rapidly, far more rapidly than the natural disease process. And so we choose disease indications in which the clearance of the cells can produce sometimes within a day or two uh, an effect because the cells, their presence is not only driving an aging process, but they're actively exerting bad biology. For example, in the case of osteoarthritis, we theorize they drive pain. In the case of certain eye diseases, we think that they are actively causing underlying pathophysiology in the eye that when you clear, you might see a result within days. And so, you, so we specifically pick those. Now, you could do something kooky and pick some disease that is like worse than watching paint dry, and you'd have to then be watching these patients for years and years at a time, but that's certainly not something you want to be doing if you have the choice to look at these indications in which you can get a very rapid effect. So let's talk in terms of drug development and where you are now. So um, I suffer from degenerative disc disease. And I got that diagnosis a few months ago. And my father has, since he was a teenager, suffered from this. And uh, today he is functionally crippled by this disease. And it is the gradual loss of cartilage between his vertebrae. I am beginning that process. And if I do not intervene, I will face the same fate as my father. And uh, what we've been able to show in animals over the arc of a mouse's life is that the systematic elimination of senescent cells profoundly preserves intervertebral disc height. And when I saw those data, I realized that the clock is ticking. Now, um, our first foray into uh, osteoarthritis is not going to be in the spine. It's going to be in the knee. And so what we are going to do there is inject are senolytic compounds. So senolytic is the word we use for a molecule that selectively eliminates senescent cells. And what we've been able to show in mouse and also in ex vivo human tissue is that the elimination can halt the osteoarthritic disease process and actually, from a cartilage point of view, reverse portions of it. And so our hope is that this idea turns out to be correct in people. In the next 18 months, we will be able to dose our first human being in osteoarthritis of the knee. Now, going from there to solving my back problems so I don't wind up like my, I don't wind up like my father is going to be a, a project because we have to understand how do we deliver a senolytic to all of the vertebrae in my back in some way that is sensible. But that's a project that's very exciting. And if you think about the opportunities... And would you be the human guinea pig for this project? Um, Could you be? I suppose, actually, I probably couldn't. So I think that there are rules around that. Mm. Okay. Yeah, just wondering. Although if I probably enrolled in a 
placebo. I suppose I could roll in double blind study, I suppose, and that might be fine. And I kind of ask that because we're all, especially when it comes to your own individual health, we're all kind of impatient and that clock is ticking and science is very slow, isn't it? You know, it's funny. Science never seems slow to me, but that's because I do it. And so to me, I am more, we're pretty, you know, there's a kind of natural physics to how you have to do a clinical study. And um, it's, I suppose it seems slow to the people on the outside. But Perhaps science yeah. is slow from the laboratory, the test tube, to the doctor's office, to real-life treatment. Yeah, it must seem very slow, but measured that way. But, you know, the incremental ways in which we kind of remove risk from ideas, do, you know, doesn't feel particularly slow. But um, so one thing I will say about osteoarthritis and why it's exciting is not to sort of really exaggerate, but I don't think I am, but osteoarthritis is the primary reason it hurts to be old. So if you can kind of internalize that idea, I mean, imagine if the the hallmark feature of being old, and if you just watch a 78-year-old move around or an 85-year-old walk down the street, they are in chronic pain because of their joints. And you see it in every motion they make. You mean the fact that the older we get, it takes slightly longer to get out of the chair? Well, that's kind of a side effect. That's how it starts. Well, it starts with pain, right? So that every single, because you have 360 joints in your body and you begin to lose the lubricating structure between all of these. And motion, which is what defines, it's the physical implementation of our volition, our will as a living creature. That is gradually denied by this process of osteoarthritis. So imagine if we understood this disease well enough to intervene in it, and that did not occur anymore. I mean, imagine what it would be like to be 95 and to move without pain. You'd certainly have other diseases of aging, the ones in which senescence is not involved, and those exist. But it would be very exciting to me if we could do something like that. So I was just curious, using the phrase, it, it hurts to get old. It's just that gradual onset of, of pain f- from conditions like the one you describe. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually, I, what I've not done is a systematic analysis to figure out what other diseases cause pain as you get old. For all, you know, for all we know, that that's the big one. And that the other ones are, you know, they cause you like problems with your kidneys and your mind but as far as pain that's the big one physical pain certainly. yeah physical yeah. pain yeah. yeah i mean there's, there's obviously mental pain yeah forgetting things mm-hmm. that yeah. kind of thing how old are you by the way um i am turning 49 in a few weeks okay um what else do you do in in your daily life to make that clock go a little slower well um you don't look 49 <laughs> that's right not much let's see what do i do i take um aspirin i take uh every day um, because there's data suggesting that it um, can suppress cancer. Um, I actually take metformin, um, but that's uh-huh. because my A1C was ever so slightly too high. A1C? Oh, hemoglobin A1C. And so um, while I was not in the danger zone for type 2 diabetes, it was just a touch. It was one standard deviation higher than it really should have been for my age. And the role of A1C? Oh, so A1C is, um, is basically hemoglobin A1C is a marker... Uh, kind of a trailing marker of the last month or two of your glucose level. Because you could take your glucose level at some moment in the day and it could be anywhere. It goes up and down. Based on what you eat and stuff like that. So a better number of like what's your kind of glucose situation is you measure this thing called hemoglobin A1C. 
And so mine was just a touch too high. And so I was always aware of the data that metformin could, you know, rodents could very so slightly extend lifespan. And there's lots of reports of in vitro observations of it helping with neurogenesis and stuff, but it's all kind of soft conclusions. So I saw no, and of course, the fact that it lowers your blood glucose, which we know to be generally a good thing, I went on it. And it's side effect free. And so as long as you eat it with food. So aspirin, uh, metformin, and I exercise. What exercise do you do? I tend to swim and ride bikes, but ever since I got my diagnosis of my spine, I stopped running. And metformin, just going back to that, how long have you been taking it and have you noticed any changes? Um, well, unfortunately, in order to see a change, I would need a, a 20 clones of myself, both on and off drug, and they'd have to be blinded. So I cannot see any changes. Um, That's kind of what I'm getting at, that yeah. we, we do these things, yet we don't really know whether it's actually doing us any oh, good or not. In, in all likelihood, it's probably done nothing except that it did lower my A1C, um, one little click. So I noticed that change, okay? But um, the data with metformin is largely, in my use of it, justified by the A1C number, but the rodent data is compelling and properly controlled. We just have no idea if that rodent data will predict anything in humans. Um, so um, I would say that um, uh, I am not particularly wacky or extemporaneous in my use of, of chemical agents to extend life, mostly because I'm not sure these agents are safe. So I don't take, for example, um, nicotinamide riboside, which is something which can extend life in rodents at extremely high dose. And, you know, it's a supplement. You can order it. It's, what does it do? It's not really clear what it does, but the thinking is, is that it raises NAD levels, and there's some evidence that raising NAD, cellular NAD um, can extend life. But the doses that you take as a supplement are far lower when adjusted for the size of the mouse, um, and raising NAD levels? Oh, so NAD is a cofactor that's used in a bunch of biochemistry throughout your metabolism. And so NAD is a molecule that transfers electrons around. And so it exists in these two states, one that's loaded with electrons and one that's empty. And so this, when you take this molecule, the thinking is that it increases the sort of NAD plus form, which is the I'm not loaded with electrons yet. And there's some scant evidence that, you know, and it was a fancy paper in science that at very high dose it did something in mice. But I think it's a long stretch to before you could believe that to do it in humans. And the effect in mouse was very, very small. And I'd go further to say that it's not clear it's safe, right? Okay. And so I don't think, you know, safety first, right? Metformin, you know, is we've got 50 years of data showing it's safe. Aspirin, we have... I don't know how long. It's probably over 100 years of data there. And so I feel pretty comfy with those two things. So you've got a measured approach. Very. Based on science. What is your own personal attitude towards your longevity? Do you have certain aspirations? I would like to avoid the conditions that my father got. I would like to avoid cognitive decline, which is something that's already started. And, you know, it's something I'm conscious of it all the time. And my son, who has a mind very much like mine, he has this freakishly good memory. Mine used to be freakishly good. He'll often note, like, ways in which my mind has begun to fail compared to his. Just because his... What memory. does he say? 
Oh, he said, Dad, well, you know, that, you should remember that number sequence you saw it a week ago. You know, and he'll just see it one time and he'll passively absorb a nine-digit number. And, and how old is he? He's eight. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm highly conscious of that. So my aspirations would be to avoid the pain of the spinal stuff, to avoid cognitive decline. I would love it if I could run again. You know, uh, right now, you know, I swim every day and I'm very dedicated. But running is one of my, is possibly one of my favorite things in the entire world, other than like cuddling with my son. You know, it's like the best thing and I can't do it anymore because of this biology. But of all the people in the world, I take the issue more seriously than most, okay? And we're building molecules that could make it one day that I could go and run 15 miles. And that's pretty exciting. And we touched on earlier, and you said we'd come back to it, so I'd like to, the, the, the notion of living for a very, very long time, whether it's 150 years or more, or even, dare I say it, forever. Is that a pipe dream? So there's this idea called the existence theorem, which is like nothing unreal exists, right? And so, you know, we have creatures that are immortal. So there's a jellyfish. You don't want to be this jellyfish. But its biology runs forward and it develops into a full jellyfish. And then it proceeds to de-differentiate back into something approximating an ovum. And then it reboots again and, and reruns its program forward. So its developmental program runs forward and backwards like a loop tape. And what that suggests is that you can build a creature, albeit a far simpler creature than us, capable of existing forever. And it's not a germline, you know, or it kind of, it's, it's, you know, so it's, well, it remakes its germline in effect. Now, it, let's hypothetically say we could run like a loop tape and, you know, today was your, the oldest you were going to get and tomorrow you're going to be a day younger. You know, you'd erase all of what you were and you'd eventually become this, you know, this uh, zygote and then reboot and become you again, that would suck. Okay. But I think there's a, there's a lesson there, which is that that particular creature has the ability to run a developmental program backwards. When we think of our germline, okay, so right now, I'm, yours is below the table, so I can't see it, but you know, right below the table is a portion of you that's immortal. So that will be passed sacrosanct genetically and epigenetically to your children, if you have them, okay? Or if you will have them in the future. And they will pass that on to their children. And if aging were somehow, for example, permanent, or it would wind up kind of in the germline, and that every generation would sort of get shorter and shorter lifespans, but that's not what happens. And so it suggests that even within our own bodies, there are conditions under which you have cells that are privileged and they have some self-awareness to say, I'm a germ cell and I'm going to protect and maintain in a very special way immortality. And so the question remains, is there something about being a germ cell that you could teach other cells? And is it something you'd want to teach other cells? Because the thing about germ cells is that they've been stripped of all of their epigenetic modifications. And so those are all the little acetylations and methylations and a few other things that tell the cell how old it is. It tells the cell what it is and where it is. And if you were to go through and erase that, you wouldn't be you anymore. But you, you know, said, would we want it? And that kind of hits the nail on the head. And this sort of 
tinkering with science to an extreme level is something that I mean, the vast majority of people think really is science fiction <laughs> and that we should be focusing on, and, and you are indeed focusing on issues that can help us here and now, mm-hmm. and that that's way more important. Yeah, I, I mean, I personally don't, as a human being, aspire to like live a thousand years or do, I mean, be cool if that was sort of an option and you can just press a button. Um, I am very interested in the biology of the ultimate ticking of the clock, right? So, you know, senescence is which we've been focusing on for the last half decade. When, I'll make the way to think about it, the metaphor I use is thinking about a tree. So if you're a scientist and you're studying a tree, but you can't see the whole tree. So say you're like a scientist, but you're kind of wearing blinders. And you're, there are leaves, there's stem, there's the trunk, and then there's the roots. And you often don't know, as a scientist, say, studying cellular senescence, are you studying a leaf? Are you studying a stem? Could you be studying the trunk? Or, my God, could you be studying the roots of this thing? And um, I believe that if you want to get at something like the biology of living forever like like that uh, unfortunate jellyfish, right, that none of us want to be, I think you have to work on the roots. And I think in all likelihood, most individuals, myself included, are working on things like leaves or stems. I think cellular senescence is a very thick and robust stem, okay, or branch, because of its penetrance into so many of these diseases of aging, which require these cells. But I don't believe it's the ticking clock. I think that resides elsewhere. I believe the ticking clock can induce senescence, but not vice versa. We haven't talked much about diet. What is your attitude towards the significance of of what we eat, what we put inside our bodies? Uh, Well, I have my own um, personal behaviors, and then I have what I know from literature. So the first evidence that we could ever perturb lifespan was uh, an accident. Uh, It was during the 1930s when Clive McKay at Cornell because it was the depression, didn't have enough money to feed his rat colony. And so he had to feed one of the groups only every other day. And surprisingly, this thing lived, you know, you know longer than the groups receiving um, food all the time. So that was our first evidence that this was um, a perturbable system, this whole longevity thing. Um, since that time, this whole idea of, so there's been a lot of effort to dissect the molecular components of calorie restriction. And there's been some success at understanding this. And we have molecules that partially copy the effects of calorie restriction, but they are not without side effect. And they're not molecules I would ever take, at least the way they're currently dosed, because the side effects are quite severe. Um, As it relates to, so, so I'm interested in the biology of how nutrient sensing impacts lifespan. Um, as far as my own life, um, I don't do the starvation diet um, because I, I did try it for a week or two, the whole 5-2 diet, and I decided that, you know, squeezing out a little bit of health span and lifespan was not worth um, the uh, emotional impacts of it. And so that's for other people. The fact that it's actually not that easy to go without food for an extended period of time. Well, it was more just, you know, I didn't actually find the days when I was doing it to be particularly hard because the 5-2 diet was is actually relatively forgiving. It was the kind of, it was almost like 
the anxiety of going to the dentist office. So during the days in which I was eating... It's the buildup, isn't it? I knew the day when I wasn't eating was coming, and it, there was kind of this sort of ambient anxiety about like, oh, I'm not going to be eating tomorrow. Um, I also gained weight on it. Uh, well, which, that's surprising. Yeah, because I was... And unusual. I was compensating on the days in which I wasn't eating. Oh, you were eating too much. Yeah. Right. Okay. And so, 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 you know, it, the whole thing wasn't really a great solution for me. Moving ahead... What's the next big project for you? What would you like to tackle? Um, so we're very interested in diseases of the eye. So nearly every disease of the eye is a disease of aging. And so we have evidence that senescent cells are driving multiple diseases that progress in the eye um, in the later stage of life. And you know these are things which make you go blind. And some of these diseases are things without cure. Some have maintenance therapy, in which you can sort of hold the disease partially at bay or slow it down. <clears throat> but if our ideas are correct, and it is yet too early to say that they are correct, but if they are, it means that there's diseases, things like macular degeneration or glaucoma, in which one could go into the eye and um, intervene in the fundamental pathophysiology of disease. And that would be incredibly exciting. So this, you know, these are... Um, causes of blindness for which there is no cure. There is just maintenance. And um, the idea of getting at the root of this disease is very exciting. It is exciting. It has been a fascinating conversation. Ned David, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's it for this episode. If you've enjoyed this and the other interviews on our podcast so far, I'd be very grateful if you could post a review. A five-star review at iTunes, for example, is hugely helpful to us and will help to guarantee the podcast's future. I'm also interested to hear your thoughts on the interviews. Let me know the subjects that interest you and any suggestions for guests. You can contact us through our Live Long and Master Aging website. That's llamapodcast.com. You can also follow us and leave messages on Facebook and Twitter at Llama Podcast. Many thanks for listening. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rude. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.